Good morning. Welcome to Hope. It's good to have you. Yeah, we have a guest preacher today. His name's Tom Masterson. Yeah, I don't know. Does he? We'll find out, I guess. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Tom. Yes, good morning. Um, if you are visiting with us and you haven't left already, uh, please <laughs> fill out this piece of paper and we will follow up with you accordingly. Also, a good way to communicate your prayer requests with us. Uh, we would uh, love to know what's going on in your life so that we can be in prayer with you for those things. So please communicate. A uh, couple things going on around here you should know about. First of all, we have an online portal through which you can log in, find each other, uh, update information if you've moved or something like that. Uh, but please go there and make sure your information is current. And you can also do other things on our website, which are great. Uh, but do that all through our website, and we'll, we'll get the clicks. That'll help. Good stuff. Um, then let's see. Youth group resumes tonight, but with Jello. So this is called the Jell-O Olympics. We did this, I don't know, several years ago. Um, there will be Jell-O. There will be a baby pool full of Jell-O. There will be a slip and slide covered in Jell-O. There will be Jell-O thrown. There will be Jell-O hit with baseball bats. There will be Jell-O uh, eaten using only the face. There will be Jell-O everywhere. I've even made some Jell-O. How do you? What's the plural of discus? Is it disguy? Disguy made made some Jell-O discuses. Um, so we will have. But the the kids will be standing barefoot in the baby pool full of jello as they attempt to throw their disc eye. So, <clears throat> something like that. Um, there will be bobbing for things in the vat of jello. That'll be before they stand barefoot in the jello. We don't always do it that way. But we got complaints last time when we had them picking marbles out with their toes and then we had them bob for things in the jello we got complaints i don't know. we didn't do no of course not never um, but that will be some of the, or most of the events that i can recall for the jello olympics today at 5:15 uh, you're welcome to come you're welcome to observe you're welcome to help set up a, an event or officiate it or whatever um, but if they don't like your call Expect Jello. So, uh, just you know, dress accordingly. If you are a youth parent, I suggest renting a car to take your kid home tonight. Just a little bit of advice. Um, and that is actually all way more important than the fact that we're having a congregational meeting after church today. Just kidding. All right. Uh, so, <clears throat> about 15 minutes after the conclusion of our worship service, we will gather for a congregational meeting. Uh, we are, are honestly seeking your feedback on the idea 
of bringing uh, Darden Kaler back on staff. We will give you all the background for that at the meeting, but uh, as well as a, a year-to-date financial update, et cetera. Um, hope you can stick around and join us. That will be on our Zoom channel as well. Um, so, then other save the dates. Uh, we're going to Lockhart November 13th, and then on Saturday, December the 3rd, uh, there is a field trip to, <laughs> uh, the, the building is actually a Mormon church, don't freak out, uh, they are hosting a community-wide Handel's Messiah, and it's free, so there's a multi-faith uh, choir and orchestra that will be uh, performing Handel's Oratorio, this was a part of our um, Messiah Song Sermon Series and the Tuesday Night Bible Study last earlier this year. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So uh, we decided that and we would go for the free service because, you know, we're Presbyterian. That's, that's the way we do things. Free is our favorite word. Um, so that's going to be on, Michael, your arms are crossed, you're glaring at me. Is it because we're going to a Mormon church? We will survive. We will survive. And you don't have to go. All right. Yeah. So anyway, um, the, is, is from what I can discern on the website, this is a community event. It's not an exclusively Mormon event. I think it'll be fine. I think it'll be beautiful, actually. And uh, this particular um, oratorio is one that is worth... Uh, hearing and worshiping through wherever you may be. So encourage you to set that on your calendar. We will be uh, going, uh, I guess it's free, so you just show up early and get a seat, I think is probably the best way to do it. Um, but if you want a carpool or something like that, those options may be available in the near future, but we'll worry about that when we get closer to it. Um, what else? I think that's all for now. Let's have all of the important people come down to the front. If you are in fifth grade or younger, you are invited down for the children's chat at this time. Is that my pen? Hope Church pen. Well, you can, you can hang on to it. I've got one. You want mine? Here. No? Just keep it? All right. Thank you. How are y'all doing today? Life is good? Yeah? Okay. Um, tell me whether this sounds good or bad. You ready? You ready? All right, here we go. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Does that sound good or bad? bad. Yeah, they didn't do good things. They did bad things. Um, and do you know what God did when his people did bad things? He made them nicer. I'll take that. He what? He what? He did what? The world? Flooded the world, yes, there, there was that. 
Going dark, going deep. All right, good girl. She knows her Bible. Um, So, God, when his people did what was evil in his sight, he raised up, he raised up a Savior. Right? And in the case of the flood, who was the Savior? Noah. Right? And in this case, the Savior would be named Samson. Um, Was Samson a good Savior? Yeah, kind of, not really. He was a little weird. Um, And so all of these people that God raises up to save his people when they do wrong are just pointing to one Savior who will come, who will make all things right. You know who that is. Jesus. You nailed it. You all get a star for that one. You all said Jesus. How about silver? Red? Red it is. What color do you want? Green, blue, silver, gold, red. Silver. Silver. All right. Excellent choice. Very good. I could do green. It'll match your dress. Gold it is. <laughs> Hand out. There you go. All right. Oh, oh, oh. There we go. Now they all have stars on theirs. Very good. So here's the message. We don't always do what's right. Have you ever done something wrong? Yes. Yeah, me too. Me too. And God's response to that is to send us a Savior. His name is Jesus. You already got that right. And when we do things that are wrong, God wants us to go back to our Savior, to tell him we're sorry, to seek his forgiveness, and to know that God loves you, and he forgives you, and he wants you to be with him, to do what is right in his eyes, and to enjoy your life in harmony with God and the people around you. Does that sound good? All right, let's say a prayer. Dear God, thank you for these precious children, for the gift that they are to our lives and to our church. We pray your blessing upon them as they study more of your word and hope for kids this morning. We pray that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit and lead them into a deeper understanding of your love for them through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that when we do things that are bad, you have provided our Savior, Jesus Christ, to forgive us of our sins and to restore our relationship with you and with others so that we can live in the joy and the freedom and the peace and love that you have promised to us through your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great time in Hope for Kids. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why y'all don't run like that to come in here. What's wrong with you? It's not me. It's not me. <laughs> yes, Don't please don't run like that. We'll all be like in traction for the next several months. All right. Well, let me, let me open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into our, our new sermon series this morning. God, our loving Father, we open our hearts. As we open your word, we pray that you would speak to us, 
that you would reveal to us what it is that you want for us and from us in this life. We just ask for your direction, your voice uh, in our hearts. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts to meet you through your word, we lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts, our grief, our disappointments, our failures, our sins. We lay them all there and ask that you would lift those burdens from us, that we might be more free to encounter you here through your word today. Father, we lift up those whom we know and love, with whom we have had conflict, and we pray for peace and reconciliation where it is needed. We lift up those who are in need of your healing mercies, and we pray that you would pour out your healing upon them. I lift up especially my brother-in-law, Lou Harris, as he uh, battles cancer. I just pray your healing over him. And all the others that we uh, know and love, I, I know of other diagnoses in our midst that are ongoing, and I just pray your healing over those here and those whom we love. And Lord, we lift up those who grieve, and we pray for your comfort and peace over their hearts. We pray for this country, for our leaders at every level of government, elected and appointed, and we pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. Lord, we lift up our men and women in uniform. We pray that you would watch over and protect them. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way. We ask that you would bring them home safely. We lift up those who've returned home from their service changed as a result of what they experienced. And we just pray your healing over them, mind, body, and soul. Use us, your people, to minister that grace, that love, and that hope that is yours to their hearts and their lives and their families. And Lord, we lift up your church here at Hope and around the world. We pray that as your word goes forth this morning, that it would not return to you empty. We just pray for those churches that we are related to through our denomination and through our missions giving, uh, and we just pray that you would especially bless them today as they worship you. Um, Be with us now as we open your word, open our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, sometimes conversations and interactions that you have with me lead to sermon series. So here we are. And uh, a comment was made about how many unnamed women there are in the Bible. And that discussion led to Um, some thoughtful interaction on that subject. And what I want you to do as we we begin this new series, the series is called Unveiled. And we're looking only at stories in the Bible that involve women that are not named. And we're going to use that as a lens for looking at our own hearts and I want to offer you this sort of entry pathway that for the sake of this series, use their namelessness as an invitation for you to see yourself there and to project into the story how that person would have experienced the events around them and what God especially was saying to their hearts as women 
as people in the midst of, of redemptive history as it unfolds. And so most of the stories that... We're not going to try to cover all the nameless women in the Bible. Um, for example, like Noah's wife, uh, there's, there's not a ton there that really can be exposited as to her situation. So there's one where we just kind of went, there's not enough, it doesn't appear to be enough there to really mine that from the vantage point of Noah's wife. And so we looked at some of the nameless women in the Bible and then tried to figure out, like, where are these stories really um, revealing of, of a few things, of God's redemptive heart, and where are these stories, what, are they, what do they reveal about biblical womanhood? And my, my comment to you there, whether you're male or female, is we all will benefit from doing a better job of appreciating what women were created to be and the struggles that they face in a sinful and fallen world. And as we can learn to appreciate these nameless women in the scriptures, we can learn to better appreciate the women in our lives, the women around us. And if you are a woman, maybe, hopefully, this will minister something to your own heart and your own soul that will give you strength and courage and a sense of belonging to an eternal sisterhood that transcends time. So let me put it this way. I don't want you comparing yourself, if you're a woman, to the women we are going to be studying. I do want you to see yourself in their position, in their shoes, in their situation, but I want you to celebrate whatever attributes of God are revealed through these women. I want you to celebrate that as you are a part of this greater accumulation of biblical womanhood in the world and throughout redemptive history. Celebrate these women, celebrate their contribution to uh, God's word and to our own hearts and lives. And to begin this process, we are going to look in the 13th chapter of the book of Judges. And I'm going to give you a little bit of background uh, before we begin because there's some weird stuff going on here. Uh, you will hear the term Nazarite, and this is a, um, it comes from the book of Numbers. It's a vow that anyone in God's family could take to separate themselves, that's what the word means, Nazarite, one separated, to separate oneself from the general population of Israel and dedicate oneself for a period of time to God. And this, could, this was open to men and women. I would give you the modern equivalent of, say, uh, priests and nuns, right? They're, they're taking a vow that involves giving something up to set themselves aside and dedicate their lives to God. The difference with the Nazarite vow is it was, it, it was inherently temporary. Uh, for the most part, most Nazarites would do this for some period of time just to kind of get themselves right with God or to seek God for a particular situation um, or what have you. 
Uh, and you can read more about that in the book of Numbers. I've got the reference uh, in here somewhere. Numbers 6, verse 2. It was open to men and women. Um, but that being said, part of the Nazarite vow included abstaining from alcohol and abstaining from unclean foods, which any good Jewish person was supposed to do anyway. And then for, for the men in particular, the Nazarite vow included not cutting the hair. And so just as a weird correlation, um, anybody remember the James Bond movie Goldfinger? Okay, the assassin hanging on the outside of the airplane. I don't know his name. Uh, do you know his ethnicity? Anyone? Anyone? No, not James Bond. The assassin hanging on the outside of the airplane in the movie Goldfinger. He had a turban. He was a Sikh. He was a Sikh. Sikhs are from northern India, mainly Punjab. They can also be from Pakistan. They're not, they're not Muslim and they're not Hindu. They're their own thing. And part of the vow that a Sikh man takes as a warrior is to never let a razor touch his skin. That vow is in, is in Numbers chapter 6 for the Nazarite that no razor shall touch the skin. So there's a current ex- extant practice for warriors that involves this non-shaving thing. I, it's ancient. I'm just trying to say it that way. Um, and this is part of a vow of setting yourself aside. And I'll, I'll, go even, I'll get even weirder. Um, I, I think what God is trying to do is you can look at everything in redemptive history as movement, God's movement towards the restoration of Eden. And so when someone is set apart like this, they're, they're, no razor is going to touch their skin because... Adam didn't shave, right? He had nothing with which to shave. He was a hairy dude. Um, And so the Nazarite vow is sort of a reaching back to this primordial place of humanity where they're in harmony with God and all of these modern things are pushed out of the way. So just to get fully weird for you. Um, So you will see this vow mentioned in this passage. I just wanted you to know what it was and where it came from. Um, You will also hear uh, or encounter a a character who is referred to as the angel of the Lord. In this case, the angel of the Lord is actually God himself, and you will see that evidenced in the passage. And then you will also see a sacrifice made on a makeshift altar. And God accepts this sacrifice. And this is very important that, that let me put it this way, not, not all sacrifices have to be made at the temple on that altar, right? That, that these can be valid in other contexts. This is a kind of a mind-blowing uh, event from a Jewish perspective, Um, but all sacrifices point toward a Messiah, one who will come, who will be the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so this passage will uh, 
point toward the Messiah in a couple of different ways, but that's one of them. So I just want you to have that context before we read. Now I'm going to uh, finally read Judges chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And when I get to verse uh, 3, I'm going to interrupt the text again, just because I'm a terrible person and I can't help it. All right, so just bear with me. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. And what's not in here is to which she said, Thank you, Captain Obvious. Okay, we'll go on. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Very good. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is it to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat and the grain offering, with the grain offering, and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching. And they fell on their faces to the ground. So I wanted to stop there 
because that is the moment where everything becomes clear to Manoah and his wife. Um, their next, if you keep reading, which I encourage you to do, um, the next thing they say to each other is, we're goners. We've seen God. We're gonna, there's no way we're going to survive that. And what they failed to take into account was the sacrifice, the offering, the atonement that that points to covered them. And so here we are in this situation where this woman who is out in a field, probably taking a break from work, and this angel of the Lord appears to her and has this interaction. And if you, if you notice, the first Nazarite in this story is Manoah's wife. It's the woman. And she will be one of many miracle moms throughout the history of redemption that help us understand God's heart for redemption. And so you can, you can already, you already get this, right? When, when, a, when a woman who has no child is told by an angel or the angel of the Lord that she will conceive and give birth, like your antennas should be up, right? And the ultimate um, expression or experience of this promise is Jesus, where the angel appeared to Mary and to Joseph and said, you will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. And so here we have a very similar interaction between God and a miracle mother. And she will, Manoah's wife, in case you did not know this, I think I alluded to it earlier, but she will give birth to Samson, who actually is a terrible Nazarite because he keeps getting drunk. Um, so he wasn't very good at keeping his vows. And that's an important part of redemptive history, that that we remember that that our standing with God is not based on our faithfulness. It's not based on how well we behave. It's based on who God is and what Christ has done for the sake of our redemption. That's what our standing with God is based upon. And and Samson and Manoah are both great examples of this. Um, so the, the only faithful Nazarite in this portion of the book of Judges is the unnamed woman married to Manoah. Um, well, she had a name. We just don't know what it was, right? So let's go back to the beginning of this passage, there, there are two situations that we need to take note of that are both telling us the same thing. That we, as human beings, need to know that God sees us. That he sees who we are, where we are, what our afflictions are. And there are two aspects of this. Let's start in verse 1. God sees the bigger problem. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And 
basically, this just means that we left our relationship with God and turned to our own way, and now we are suffering the consequences of that reality. And God hasn't left us. He's paying close attention. He knows what's going on. He knows where we are, and he knows that we're suffering. And he is going to bring about our redemption. But first, we need to understand that God sees this bigger... He sees us, and he sees the bigger problem, that we are sinful, that our hearts are riddled with selfishness and sinfulness, and that our sin and the sin of others cause us to feel distant from God and forgotten by Him. Forty years is a long time to feel distant from God. We are sinful and we need grace, especially when we are forgotten or feel forgotten by God. So, first takeaway that we can turn away from God, but he never turns away from us. He'll, he'll let us go to the end of our leash, so to speak, and there might be an uncomfortable uh, stop at the end of that run, but he's always there. He's always with us in that sense. And we may not feel it, but he hasn't forgotten He sees us, and he sees this bigger problem. And then he sees us in our affliction. Think about about this woman in the historical context in which she lives. A, A woman's identity is very, very bound up in to whom she is married and the offspring that come from her. This is also, in this time period, her social security system, right? If you have kids, they are bound. Izzy, are you listening? If you have kids, they are bound to take care of you in your old age, all right? And your dad is really old. Yeah. So... So Manoah's wife is out in a field, and what's going through her mind? I'm alone. I'm forgotten. I I don't have something that it feels like every other woman around me has. I am different. I am forgotten. I am fill in the blank. That God sees her, that he moves into her place of feeling alone and forgotten and forsaken, and he speaks to her, tells us that he sees our affliction and all of the self-doubt that comes with affliction. She must be thinking, there's something wrong with me. I'm not as much of a woman as the one next to me or as all of these women around me. I am something 
less. And God says, no, you're not. Your identity is bound up in who I am. I created you, male and female, in my image to live and to thrive and to enjoy being who you are. And I have a purpose for you, an identity for you, that transcends your circumstances. And so God comes to Manoah's wife in her affliction, in her very personal affliction, and all the self-doubt that would have come with that, and the sense of rejection that she would have been living with, to say, you're not alone, you're not forgotten, you're not rejected, I love you. And so I think that's the first thing to to take up in this passage is to see this woman in her place, in redemptive history, in her culture, in her community, alone, feeling forgotten, and to see that God doesn't forget. He is the God who remembers. He remembers her. He remembers you. God sees you. And God wants you to find your place in his eternal plan. He is up to something. And, and we see that next in this passage as a childless woman is visited by an angel and a promise is made to bring about a son who will be the Savior, the temporary Savior in this case, of God's people. We see a pattern. This is like God is pressing his fingerprint onto this story in redemptive history. Look, it's me. And pay attention because at some point, the ultimate expression of this pattern will manifest itself in your life. His name will be Jesus, not Samson. But for now, God calls this woman into her place in redemptive history. When she was feeling forgotten and alone and full of self-doubt and feeling rejected, that's when God came to her. And this reminds us that his promise is for anyone. And he calls her first into the Nazarite vow. Um, There was no need for God to articulate that she not Uh, put a razor to her skin. Um, Women didn't do that in this period of time in in history. So that was an unnecessary clarification that is omitted from this text. But nonetheless, she is given the standard for the Nazarite vow. This is the very first what to expect while you're expecting. The pregnancy diet for Manoah's wife included only clean foods and nothing fermented. And so, here, we see God doing something that we should pay attention to. That his promise, he's extending his promise to the most unlikely of people. The less likely, the better. The more that person feels alone or forgotten or isolated or unloved, the more God wants to move to their heart and speak His grace to them. 
His promise is for anyone. The more unlikely, the better. And it's a promise to look toward the promised one. So, the focus that God places on on Manoah's wife is not on her. It's on the offspring she will bear that will be the one who will fulfill God's promise to save Israel, in this case, just from the Philistines. Um, In the more ultimate case, it will be the promise that God makes to Mary to bring from her womb a Savior for the whole world, for all kinds of people. And that is what we are to see. We're to see this pattern in this story, and it should bring forth from our minds the story of Christ, the story of Mary, the story of the birth of our Savior. And so we are reminded that God's promise is for all of us and that His heart is to redeem. Now, we're going to beat up on Manoah a little bit. All right? And this is so ironic, right? That his name is recorded in the story and hers is not. Um, she, like Mary in the New Testament, responds in obedience and faithfulness. And she goes and communicates to her husband what was told to her by the angel of the Lord. He doesn't believe her. He's like, yeah, huh? Okay, I'm going to pray that he comes back because I don't believe you. He didn't say it quite like that. And so the angel of the Lord comes back. But not to him. To her. And, and so I want you to think about the, the establishment of her credibility in this. Right? Like, her husband doesn't believe her. So the angel comes back to her again, she goes and gets her husband and brings him back, and he's got to be like, whoa, she was right. But instead of being humbled by that, he enters into this um, series of negotiations with the angel of the Lord, not knowing he's actually talking to God himself, who, by the way, is used to this kind of thing. We do it to him all the time, right? Um, God's heart is to redeem in spite of our disbelief. Manoah doesn't believe his wife, and he doesn't believe that God is going to give him a progeny, a son, a child. And then it gets better. I'm just going to reread part of this. So, We're just going to pick up creepy Manoah in verse 15 where he says to the angel of the Lord, oh, by the way, when the angel of the Lord speaks to Manoah and Manoah asks him, what did he ask him? Um, When your words come true, what what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? Is this guy a boomer? What's going on here? 
Um, and he says, the angel of the Lord just repeats what he told the woman. He just repeats what he already said. And Manoah's left going, oh, yeah, her, her account was complete. That's all I'm going to get, right? But he wants to, he, there's stuff he wants to know, and he doesn't get it. He just gets what has already been told to the woman. Just, just be faithful, stick it out. I got this. I have a plan. You're part of it, but you've got to trust me that I've got a plan. So does Manoah trust? No. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. Um, this would have been a gesture of hospitality, but not a very great one. Right? Like a young goat? Eh. Would you rather have chicken? Zach, wouldn't Chick-fil-A have been a better choice? Chick-fil-A. They should have gone to Chick-fil-A. Like, hey, let me take you to lunch. Um, but it's just going to be a little goat. He's not offering a lamb. He's not offering a calf. He's just throwing a goat out there. Right? And, of course, the angel of the Lord must have laughed. Like, uh, I'm not going to eat that, so thank you. No cabrito for me. And... So, I do like cabrito. If it's done right, I've had bad cabrito. I don't recommend it. Um, the angel suggests a burnt offering. So, what does Manoah do? He continues the negotiation. You've heard me say this before. Any attempt to extract a name from an adversary or a, a new acquaintance is an ancient Near Eastern form of power negotiation. Manoah is trying to leg wrestle the angel of God right here. What is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? I think embedded in this is still some disbelief. He doesn't believe that this is going to come true, um, but that's just my guess. The angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? There's a play on words here. If you were translating this, you can translate the same word different ways. Um, so it, the word could be translated here mysterious or unseeable. So why do you ask my name seeing that it is unseeable, that it is invisible? All right. But then later, uh, well, no, right there, he offers it on the rock to the Lord, the one who works wonders, the one who works the invisible. It's the same word. So I would translate it in the first line as invisible or unseeable. And then in the second place, I think wonder is appropriate, the God of wonders. It's the same idea, but it's, it's the same word used slightly differently in the passage. It's kind of cool. So... God's heart is to redeem. And so Manoah is trying to engage in this power play, and the angel of the Lord just says, make a sacrifice to God. That's what you need. You need to stop trying to out-negotiate me 
My heart is to redeem. In spite of your sin, in spite of your disbelief, in spite of your attempts to control God. His heart is to redeem. He's the God who forgives. He's the God who loves, who restores, who redeems. And so we see first in this passage that God sees us, both in terms of the larger problem and in our personal affliction. We see next that he wants us to find our place in his eternal plan. If there's a place for Manoah's wife, there's a place for you. And then, as the passage concludes, the last two verses we're going to look at, we are reminded to always look to the cross. Whatever our circumstances are, whatever our interactions may be, whatever our afflictions may include, we are to look to the cross. The first clue, follow the blood. There's a sacrifice, there's blood. The blood is what points you to the cross, to the blood of the Son of God which was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Every Hebrew reading or hearing this passage would have understood what a sacrifice meant. It stood for atonement. It stood for forgiveness. It stood for redemption. It pointed to a something of grace that would come. And so, going back to... Um, It is not an accident that the beginning of this passage includes God's people being sinful and that the end of this passage includes a sacrifice. This is not an accident. This is God trying to tell us something. Covenant unfaithfulness, as is alluded to in verse 1 of this chapter, brings with it violence, Darkness, death, and separation from God. Atonement is the restoration of that Eden relationship between God and man, where we can live with him in the present. It brings life and light and hope and peace to our hearts. Manoah and his wife are reminded in this interaction that a promised one will come to defeat death and sin and evil, to crush the head of that serpent and restore our relationship with God. The goat, the kid, the young goat that's sacrificed is a reminder here and to our hearts that the wages of sin is death that that is what separates us from God. The sacrifice is that which restores us to life, to love, to the presence of God. That we are not to look to this little goat, but to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God that will come. And then, when we realize everything that's, that's sort of pressed into this story, We fall down. 
before him. Did you see what Manoah and his wife did? Manoah finally gets it right. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Yes, that is us. That is our correct posture before a forgiving God, to fall down and worship. To worship the God of wonders, I love how that's phrased. The God of the invisible, the God of the unseen, the God who works power in ways we cannot understand, who can restore, renew, redeem against all odds. We are to worship that God. And then, did you notice in the beginning of verse 20, when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar, as if to say, I myself will be the sacrifice. I, ha- I will become the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. We are to worship the God of wonders, and we are to worship the God who became the sacrifice that took away our sin. Him disappearing into this smoke is not some weird accident. It's a very intentional gesture on God's part to say, this is my plan, to redeem, to forgive, to be the one who takes away the sin of the world. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we are humbled by your word, by the way in which you move toward each one of us, that you remind us that you see us in our affliction, that you have a place for us in your eternal plan, and that you are always at the work of bringing us back to the cross where you yourself became the sacrifice that took away our sin. Lord, there we fall down with our faces to the ground in awe, in gratitude, in a state of grace that thankfully because of what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it lasts forever. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for that assurance. Thank you for that security that what you have done for us cannot be taken away, cannot be undone, but it is ours eternally. And for that, we are grateful. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. One, two, three, four, five.